We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Xiao Xinsheng of the New Power Party. Good to be here again. And Klaus Badenhagen, who of course covers Taiwan for German media. Pleasure to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing a dispute within the KMT over the format for its 2020 presidential primary. President Tsai Ing-wen's calls for Taiwan-Japan security talks, a proposal for a neutrality referendum, another foreign student work-study programme scandal, and some rather odd calls for cheaper tobacco. But we'll begin with lawmakers this week voting to send the Enforcement Act of Judicial UN Interpretation number. 748 to a second reading and the oddly titled bill is of course the cabinet's plans to legalize same-sex marriage while kmt and people first party officials and lawmakers had been seeking to send the bill back to the procedural committee for further review the dpp's majority in the legislative un managed to push it forward anyway and the bill is now expected to undergo extensive discussions and an article by article review of all of its well 27 articles over the coming month and if no consensus is reached during that month-long period, a plenary session will be held to address the bill specifically. However, sources are being quoted as saying that the bill is expected to pass its third reading following the review period and it could become law before mid-April. That's long before the May 24th deadline, which was set by the Constitutional Court for the government to act on same-sex marriage. So, Xiao, what's your party think of the bill as it stands? Yeah, actually, the New Power Party has been known uh, as a powerful uh, ally in the uh, LGBT community. So we've been pushing for same-sex marriage rights um, all throughout our existence. So uh, we're very happy to see this bill uh, going to going on to the second reading, and it's expected to pass. You know, um, with probably minor hiccups, just uh, but you finally pass the third uh, reading. It's, as we expect, so every time I talk about this act, I um I can't help to explain the uh, the extraordinary um cleverness of the name, the, the Enforcement Act of the uh, Judicial UN Interpretation Number Seven Forty Eight. I mean, it's, it's really really clever because there's a big debate about you know whether the marriage should be in the title of the uh, of the act of the bill. Um, but this 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 way naming that as a as an enforcement act solves that issue. And although the referendum mandates the government to, you know, um, to marry the same-sex couples under a separate law, uh, and this bill actually is a separate law only in name, but in essence, it allows the same-sex couple to marry under the civil law. So it's an extremely clever design. I really like it. Um, but that being said, um, this law still lacks um, some you know, major points in protecting same-sex couple in their marriage rights. For example, um, whenever they uh, want to marry a foreign, you know, partner, or they want to marry o- over, they want to marry overseas, um, is that marriage status going to carry over? Or if they want to, you know, one spouse wants to adopt uh, another sto- a spouse's biological child, um, how is that going to play out legally? So all these minor issues needs to be resolved, you know, in the legislative UN, and then we are. Um, the new power party with our caucus is working very pro- proactively in this area. So, and also I have to point out the the the, uh, the anti same sex marriage camp is also proposing their their version of a, of, of, a, of a bill, um, and that's um, that's I think that's named the enforcement act of uh, refer- referendum number twelve. But I just want to point out that um, referendum number 
number twelve, whatever it's in its content, we have to remember that it cannot contradict the constitution or the uh, the judicial union's uh, interpretation of the constitution. So whatever they're trying to pass, I don't think it's gonna stand the uh, the legal muster and probably will fail. Right, Klaus. Do you, I mean, do you see? Obviously, people are confident that the bill will pass. Well, in April, not May. Do you see this happening? Well, there's a saying that no law comes out of the parliament the same way that it got in there. So um, I think if this if this um, bill doesn't get passed, or if it gets passed but it gets badly butchered along the way, it will just be a total train wreck. Because even in the version right now, there will be legal challenges. There will be claims that it uh, runs it does not adhere to what the constitutional court um, told the the government the lawmakers to do so it might get thrown out the window and it will definitely uh, get challenged even more if they water it down even more now, that being said there was a great discussion on the show on your last show here where even people who didn't agree on much they agreed that the DPP has butchered this opportunity really really badly by just not acting not acting when they had a golden window of opportunity to just pass this without much resistance. So um, I think at least the DPP really knows that they need to get this bill through Parliament right now. But what about the new power party? I mean, are you still going to propose alternatives? Like, do you still propose changing the civil code or do you let that rest now? Yes, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I, I forgot to mention, yes, actually the new power party through the legislator Freddie Lim, we have proposed a uh, alternative Bill, um, and it's even more comprehensive. It covers a lot of the adoption um, issues. So, but um, being in the uh, in the minority, we don't expect that to pass. But we want to um, move some of the causes into the government's version, and uh, we we uh, we want to make sure that the government can uh, accept those changes and then pass yeah, but, along the but, line. Yes. But when push comes to shove, like in the final voting, and if it's a close call, will mm-hmm. your five legislators still stick to Europe? Stick to your bill, which has, does not have a chance of getting passed. No, we we, we we will work with the government's version, and we want to make sure any version, it, as long as it allows the same sex couple to marry, uh, in the uh, in the, in a respectful manner. I mean, it's all to me or to Taiwan is is a great advance in the civil rights uh, movement. So uh, we, we we're happy to support the government's version. Do you think you could possibly call for changes in the bill after it's passed? Do you think the new power party could do that? After it's passed? Yeah. yeah they could amend the bill. Yeah, we're sure. Um, whatever that's passed, it's not going to be progressive enough for us. I mean, that's for sure. But um, but we want to take anything is better than nothing. So we will work with the government and make sure it passes in this um, this go around. And then we want to, you know, amend it, as uh, Gavin speaks, or, or, or maybe... Uh, add on to it uh, more progressive like classes for example like adoption and, and, and whatnot. but this would be a later date this exactly. wouldn't come straight away you'd have to wait yes, for maybe uh, two or three years well, for these one, amendments one to go step through. at a time yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that's pretty much what happened in Germany back then by the way when Germany passed the same-sex partnership law not marriage in around 2000-2001 they were like at the forefront of the development but actually initially uh, it missed quite a lot of rights like adoption and, and um, inheritance and so on. Mm-hmm. So it needed to be amended also because of further constitutional court rulings um, until, well, a year ago or almost two years ago, they um, had a vote and they instituted actual marriage. But um, So Taiwan might go down a similar path than this. They did have the chance to just leap to instituting um, actual 
marriage equality right away. Okay, mm -hmm. this opportunity passed. So maybe this is what will happen here. Yeah, uh, our party has been very harsh on DPP on exactly the same issue, is that they uh, had, uh, as you said, a golden opportunity to pass it earlier or in a more uh, comprehensive way. But they, they waited uh, and they wavered and they waited on, you know, until the last election and being so badly butchered, um, but but right now we see they still have the courage to carry this through, and and we commend them on that. So we so rarely have an actual politician sitting here. I mean, <laughs> well, you're not a, you are not yes, a member no. of the legislative UN, but no. I, I mean you are a member of the NPP leadership, and um, yes. I, I'm sure you have great contacts. So tell us a little bit about what are the what are the DPP um, parliamentarians. Maybe saying about this in private. Do do they realize they butchered well, it? The, 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 the DPP's base voters are, are quite hard against you know the, the same sex concept. Or because um, when we were campaigning on the ground, we can see firsthand um, some of the older folks. Even though they may not be Christians, but they are still uneasy with the with the idea. Um, but we in, feel in that in cities as well, or more in the rural uh, areas. Uh, Especially in the rural area, but some are in the cities as well. But we feel that it's number one. It's partly due to the uh, the extremely you know well financed campaign of the opposition. Um, I, I we still have, don't have any idea where the money is coming from, but they are extremely well supported. They have uh, volunteers on every corner of the street passing out flyers, uh, proposing against the same sex marriage. So we are we were uh, the the same sex marriage camp were against a hard battle and. Um, so it's no wonder the, the, the government, who was not pushing this hard enough, lost that battle. But still, I we see the new premier, um, Su Jian Chang, is still very active in pushing this through. And this bill is, as I say, is extremely cleverly designed. So we're still glad to see and we, we want to help the government in, in you know, passing this bill. After the way the referendums turned out in November, like no progressive course actually got passed. Uh, is there talk in the NPP now about maybe making the thresholds higher again for referenda? Or do you still say, no, it's got the way it is? Um, the NPP does not have the clear consensus on, on you know, making the referenda higher. But um, we are still you know, collecting ideas. But um, yeah, this, the referendum is uh, is is a heartache for, for us. Um, we want to make sure we, we you know how to deal with the future referendum because this referendum we didn't prepare for it well. So we're, we're working on that. There we go. Moving on now. After Klaus did my job for a bit there. Thank you, Klaus. There you go. There you go. It's free though, by the way. You won't be getting paid for doing that bit. Never mind. Should I sit in your chair next week? No, no this is no, a comfortable no. chair. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, there's continuing rumblings about the divisions within the KMT concerning how it will carry out its presidential primary. Now, according to reports, the KMT has decided to hold its primary based on a 70 to 30 weighing of public polls and party member votes. Although, of course, others are saying it hasn't ruled out the possibility of simply drafting the strongest candidate for next year's presidential election. Now, former legislative speaker Wang Jingping formally joined the party's nomination race on Thursday of this week with a rather Glitzy, glitzy is probably a wrong word, a rather, an announcement 
campaign sort of rally event that no one could really miss if you were in Taipei's Shinny district, really. It was a bit glitzy and a bit big. Anyway, he joined former new Taipei City Mayor Eric Ju and former Premier Simon Jung, who have also announced their bids for Taiwan's top job for the KMT. Party chairman Udeni has yet to announce whether he plans to run, while former President Ma Ying-jeou is remaining very tight-lipped about whether he'll be seeking to return to the presidential building. But one thing we do know is Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guo-yu, despite all the calls for him to run for president on Wednesday of this week, dismissed speculation that he could actually want to move from Kaohsiung to Taipei, telling reporters that he's currently putting all his efforts in his city's economy and not considering the presidency. So, Xiao, there we go. Who's going to get the who's going to get the nomination? And the nomination process bit of a mess and could get ugly. Yeah, I mean, it could get really ugly as um as we saw last time the uh, the so-called Huan Zhu or you just switch candidates at the uh, very end um, incident. The KMT nomination process is always hard to predict. It's very opaque, um, and so uh, we we saw that Wang Jinping did a uh, formal campaign kickoff speech. And uh, so we we were clear there's at least one candidate who is running, um, but uh, Eric Chu and um, Simon Chan they are still not announcing formally yet. So a lot of people are still speculating. But one thing I think I'm pretty sure is Han Guoyu is probably not gonna run. I mean, he's aware that he just won the Kaohsiung campaign, and the, there's a lot of minefields in the intro party, you know, politics. He probably does not want to get into. So um, we'll see. I mean. If they all run, I mean, I'm not sure who is gonna win, but um, I'm I'm betting on probably you know Eric Chu or Wang Jinping or even yeah, one of two. <laughs> I don't know if I, I have to put my money somewhere. You don't think Kong Shouju will come out again? Um, I haven't heard anything. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. But I think Wang Jinping is quite an intriguing character, and um, mm-hmm. I would not dismiss his candidacy. So, um, for one, he has um, some. Well, let's say Taiwan credibility because he mm-hmm. comes from a Taiwanese background, not from a mainlander family like candidates like Ma ying and I think also Eric Zhu. So the other only major KMT figure that has that going for them is Udon Yi. But Udon Yi is not popular with the general public. He's as the chairman, his strength is like his support right. in, within the party structure. But Wang Jinping has a very populist and popular mm-hmm. image. Mm-hmm. He's been cultivating a lot of contacts when he was legislative speaker forever, basically. Exactly. And um, he is absolutely not associated with Maingjo and what Maingjo stood for, because the two did not get along at all. I mean, we all remember the right. September strife. They were at each other's throats, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, putting him up as a candidate against Tsai Ing-wen would not be the dumbest move the KMT could make, I think. But of course, Xiao, it said 70-30 weighing of public polls and party member votes. I mean, do you see the public supporting a Wang run or a Ju run? If it's up to, to the public, I, I think um, Wang or Ju stand a pretty good chance. But if the the, the you know the party members has uh, like a, a heavy say, then uh, Wu is probably going to come out on top. So it's all depending on how they're going to play this. Um, but Wuduni being the current chairman, I mean, he has a, a upper hand in, you know, twisting the arms of all the party officials and the leadership. Um, so um, we'll still see. It's, it's still interesting drama to watch. And of course, Klaus, it could be a bit of an embarrassment if they have to switch candidates at the last minute again. <laughs> well, they have experience with that. <laughs> so one other interesting thing that Wang Jinping did was say he's only going to run for one term. So 
this way he is um, if people are criticizing him for being too old to be a candidate mm -hmm. he's basically um, taking the wind out of that argument by saying oh I will only do four years anyway you don't have to like calculate my age eight years into the future so he, he's, he's a smart guy I mean he's a player the guy has been part of the yeah, top echelon of politics for, for 20 years at least and um, and he's but he did not have an executive office unlike Eric Jewell who was the Taipei city mayor unlike Udo Ni who was vice president and premier He comes untarnished. He did not disappoint um, voters when he was actually voted in some kind of office because mm -hmm. he was just leading the legislature. Right. Yeah, so it all depends. I mean, in, in primaries, it's always who can appeal to the base voters wins. Um, so in, in this respect, Wang Jinping is weaker than, say, Eric Chu or Wu Duni or even Han Guoyu. So, um, but... When they finally have a, nom a nominee, uh, that's a whole different ball game. So that's, uh, we'll see how it turns out. Wouldn't you say that saying you're only going to run for four years is a bit defeatist, Klaus? No, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a fresh wind kind of thing. He's, he's different than, I mean, every other candidate would say, of course, I, I want to do the whole eight years. But by saying no, I, I know how to turn things around. I know how to fix things in just four years. <laughs> I think he's actually marketing that as a... As a, a comes over as a nice guy rather than a greedy guy. Exactly. Yeah, and it's, I, I'm not sure how how you can believe it if because uh, at the end of four years he can say, oh, many people want me to run again. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. Yeah, I also think. I mean, if you dig into his background, I would be surprised if there will not be some scandals or some um, stories coming up during an actual election campaign because he was in such an important post for so long and. Um, We all know what that black gold was a big topic in the KMT, maybe not in the last 10 years, but, but before that. So um, I'm sure he, he knows what he's getting into there. Right. And officials from Taiwan and Japan this week met in Tokyo for the annual fishery talks, but the meetings were a mere footnote of news about Taiwan-Japan ties as they were overshadowed by comments by President Tsai Ing-wen, who, in an interview with Japan's Sankei Shinbun, said she would like to see Taipei and Tokyo sit down for a formal security dialogue. According to Tsai, the talks would focus on regional and cyber security issues as well as matters of defence. Now, Taiwan's top envoy to Japan, Frank Scher, waded in in on Tuesday, saying that both Japan and the United States are willing to engage in a security dialogue with Taiwan, but they are concerned that the content of the talks might be leaked to China. However, talk of the talks was dismissed just as quickly as Frank Scher said that, after reports surfaced quoting an official with Japan's foreign ministry as saying that Tokyo is not considering holding such dialogue with Taiwan due to the non-government-to-government connections that exist between the two sides. So, Klaus, a big surprise that Japan didn't jump up and down and go, whoa, we'll be in there next week. Well, two things came to mind. First of all was, are there really not already some channels of communication between Taiwan and Japan for security-related in information exchange? I would find that hard to believe. And the second is, why did Tsai Ing-wen come out with this apparently without consulting with the Japanese government first? I mean, was it really... Just a weird, stupid blunder, or is there some kind of game she's playing here? So I found that quite confusing. Of course, when when pressed and asked by the media, the Japanese government will have to deny it and say, yeah, we have our own one-China policy, la, la, la. Mm -hmm. But um, I would really like to know what's going on behind the scenes here. Yeah, I mean, because we have to remember, Tsai Ing-wen is a very, very seasoned diplomat. So um, I'm not sure. 
sure it's a it's a blunder. I, I mean, everything she did, uh, especially international policy wise, um, I think it's everything is calculated. So um, if I have to guess, I would say um, she probably gave a heads up to the government, uh, Japanese government, that she's gonna say this, and then. Um, and then it, she's actually using this uh, domestically, you know, to to beef up her, uh, you know, um, international, you know, image. Because people worry about, you know, if I select, you know, DPP or Tsai Ing-wen as the next president again, is China is going to do anything? Um, they worry about the safety and security. So um, probably one way, this is one way to, you know, beef up. But um, of course, the Japanese government came out and then saying just no, it's, it's, it's helping nobody. But uh, so this is a weird saga, and then we we'll just want to um, see how how you know what 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 exactly is going on behind the curtain. Do you think Tsai could have been trying to pave things over following the referendum? That of course the banning Fukushima food products irked Japan somewhat. Maybe she maybe she tried to assure Japan that basically in in security questions Taiwan and Japan are sitting on the same side of the fence, strategically speaking. It's it's really hard to say. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and former Vice President Annette Liu has submitted a proposal for a referendum to declare Taiwan a neutral country to the Central Election Commission for review. A neutral country, so Taiwan's going to become the Switzerland of Asia, according to Annette Liu. Now, she says the petition received 10,000 signatures of support, and she plans to set up a petition stations island-wide in the hope that her proposal can make it to the second stage and be held alongside the 2020 presidential ballot. According to Liu, she will also be seeking international publicity and support for the referendum and she said this week that she remains confident that the proposal will pass if it makes it to the second stage of the election commission's review process now Liu, of course first announced her plans to push for a national referendum to declare taiwan a neutral country in 2014 but says she held back then because the referendum laws and act were still being discussed and amendments made so klaus you're you come from you you're the person in this room that comes from nearest switzerland out of all of us so <laughs> what do you think about Taiwan becoming the Switzerland of Asia through a referendum? I thought the UK is going to be kind of the Switzerland of Europe, but it's okay. No, I think they become the sort of the dirty kid in the corner of Europe. Oh, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. another matter. That's, that's the way to put it, right? Um, this is this is such a weird idea that Annette Lewis has been pushing for years here. I mean, what would Taiwan have to gain from this? You have to ask it. Uh, so they, Taiwan would basically give up uh, options it has, like it would probably say if we are neutral, we cannot buy arms from the US anymore, we don't want them anymore because we're a neutral country, but um, they would be giving up all of this without getting anything in return from China, I mean this would just play into Beijing's hands so they could uh, go on planning their what whatever invasion blockade plans and they could be pretty sure that there would even be less help coming for Taiwan if push comes to shove. So Taiwan is just not in a situation where it can afford to like, pretend it is neutral and open to all sides. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have to admit that um, I didn't know what uh, Annette Liu was doing, you know, uh, pushing this neutrality referendum. Cause I, and I, I have to admit, I have no idea what the, the neutrality referendum is, so I had to look it up. And then it just, you know, 
baffles me that、um, Taiwan is is not going to be the Switzerland of Asia because Taiwan is in the center of one of the most major conflicts in the area.、Um, so it's not that if we want to be neutral. Um, it's not that we want to get into any wars, you know, around us. It's that we are at the center of、uh, the danger of being attacked ourselves. So,、um, so、uh, in order to, you know, declare that we are a neutral country, I think what we need to do is to make sure how to, you know,、um, resolve or to, you know, the, the conflict with the, the China first.、Um, and another point is that when I see this,、uh, she proposes neutrality referendum, just struck me. It's.、Uh, That's similar to the the, the peace treat, treaty that KMT、uh, was proposing. So,、uh, but that's because before I know anything about any neutrality, you know, declarations. But it's just,、um, it just, just kind of baffling. But do you think this could pass? And if it does, Klaus, do you think it will become one of these referendums that passes, and then the government sort of shrugs its shoulders and go, okay, okay, we'll just put it in the corner and leave it. If I would have to put my money on it, I would say there's no way it passes. Also, Annette Lou is not the kind of figure who's still pulling nationwide support in, in huge numbers. I mean, she was not that popular when she was vice president, and since then, I think her image has、um, well suffered a bit over time because she came across with some weird ideas from time to time. So maybe she maybe she makes it to the actual referendum stage, but. In the act, in the current political climate and considering who's behind this, I don't really see a chance for this to pass. Right. I mean, the idea itself is not that a big a, a bad idea. I mean, being a neutral, but、um, yeah, if I have to put my money on this, I, I would say it's not even gonna get to the referendum. <laughs> There we go, pessimism. Anyway, three Philippine students this week accused a university and an organisation that sets up work experience programmes of subjecting them to illegal working hours and abusive conditions during their work study programme here in Taiwan. Now, this is not the first time this has happened, as well we had the same thing in November of last year with Sri Lankan students who were forced to work in a slaughterhouse, and in January of this year, Indonesian students were being farmed out to factories as Cheap labour by six universities. Now this week, the new, the latest students to come out and say that they're being used as slave labour, to coin a phrase, said that they were among 52 students who enrolled in a work study program at the Udai University of Science and Technology in Miao Li, and they were forced to work 40 hours a week at a tile manufacturing company. Now, Deputy Education Minister Liu Mengqi described the latest incident as completely intolerable and said that his office has now banned the Udai University from recruiting foreign students. In this semester, and he's also continuing to look into the allegations. While the organizer of a, the work study program is defending the course, however, and she said that it's aimed at helping foreign students make the transition from blue collar work to white collar work. Now, it was the Chinese Faith, Culture, and Education Development Association which supposedly organized this, and the chairwoman of that organization told reporters that although some students did work 40 hours a week, it was their choice to do so because they wanted to cover their expenses. The Association chairwoman also denied charges that her organisation was acting as a manpower brokerage and collecting payment from the students. And she said that the 2,000 NT collected monthly from the students was a counselling fee used for educational improvement. Now. 
Yesterday, Thursday, the Udai University of Science and Technology issued a huge apology to the Filipino students and it said it's now offering financial assistance including full tuition, scholarships and free room and board. While the Education Ministry has said the case has been turned over to the Miaoli District Prosecutor's Office for further investigation. So, somebody's looking rather red-faced here, Klaus, yeah? You know... This, these stories make me so angry. This is absolutely despicable. You have the Taiwanese government coming up with a new southbound policy to um, strengthen the relations with the neighboring nations whose support Taiwan really needs. And then you come up with a scheme f to bring in more students to Taiwan so then they can experience Taiwan for themselves. And what happens is you have some brokers and universities and companies who can think of nothing better than to exploit them as cheap labor. Today there's another news story that the Dongnan University, wherever that is, they actually sent out advertisements to companies saying our Southeast Asian students are even cheaper than regular migrant workers. <laughs> I mean, th these kind of so-called universities, you just need to burn to the ground, if not literally, then at least financially. And there's absolutely... No excuse for this kind of behavior. And I, well, I'm not saying the Taiwanese government is, um, has been doing fine here. I mean, now, now they're saying they want to do something. I'm just asking how, how did they not get aware of this in, in the month or year or over a year or whatever it was before? Yeah, I mean, it's. I'm extremely ashamed about this, you know, this story because uh, from a personal perspective, I, I've been in the United States for about 20 years, and I've been there working, studying. So uh, um, I, I know the stress of being overseas. I mean, um, especially the insecurity about the money and the surroundings. So uh, and being. Exploited like that um, by you know the company who brought you over and claim you are here working and studying. It's it's really as, as Klaus says, it's despicable. Um, so I, I really I strongly call on the you know the prosecutor's office to to look into this and then make sure you know whoever is responsible needs to you know pay the price. Um, and want to make sure we have you know you know even local legislators or even in in the uh, legislative UN to you know. Um, propose something that's gonna, you know, make sure uh, instead like this do not happen in the future. I mean, class one could argue the government is wholly at fault because the Ministry of Education failed to oversee these programs properly. Yeah, I, I'm just not quite understanding how it was possible for the companies, brokers, universities to get away with this for so long. I mean, all these students, okay, they have been treated as de facto work slaves, but I'm sure they still had their cell phones, they still had Facebook, they still shared their experiences like working. I don't know, eight-hour shifts and overtime entire factories and being insulted by the foreman. I, I'm sure they shared all this with their, with their friends and family back home. Um, how was it possible that this did not blow up earlier? And also now the Filipino office in Taiwan, now they're also coming out and saying, um, oh, we hope this is going to be fixed and this is a terrible behavior. Did no one contact them before? Did none of these dozens of... of mistreated students had the idea to, to tell someone in their own country's office before? I think there's still a lot of questions here that, that have not really been answered yet. Do you think that's how they got away with it for so long? Because these universities and illegal manpower brokerages that passed themselves off as associations were like bargaining on fear. The students wouldn't complain. Yeah, I mean, they have been threatened with... Um, I, know I, don't see the, I don't see the report in front of me right now, but there were... Um, Threats like um, contractual 
uh, fines. Like if you talk bad about the company, you will need to pay what five thousand US dollars, uh, some ridiculous uh, sums like this. So yeah, of course. I mean, they tried everything to have them keep their mouths shut. Um, apparently, it worked. I hope it's not working now anymore. And could the racism? Ciao. Yeah, I mean that definitely. I mean Taiwanese have been a tendency of you know, um, probably not racist in the sense that I'm accustomed to in the U.S. But uh, it's in the sense that looking down on the uh, probably South Asian neighbors, and then uh, because we have a lot of migrant workers who come from uh, Philippines, Indonesians, um, so whenever people look at them, they 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 think of you know they are cheap labor, and then that's why they, when they want to you know exploit. Um, Migrants like this—that's uh, the, the countries they immediately go to. So this is something we we really need to, you know, um, you know, fix by probably in the education systems in the, in the workforce surroundings. Because, for example, like in Australia, there's a work study programs there. Um, people don't complain and people don't say they are being used as slaves because they are they are being paid pretty well and their environments are, are pretty pretty good so i mean in in this situation um we really need to look into is any like human rights abuse is even uh, any enslavement involved so we want to make sure things like that do not happen again and before we go this week, a DPP lawmaker did something rather extraordinary and rather odd thing, bucking global trends, in fact, when he took a rather unusual stance in regards to smoking. Now, Xu Jer is calling on the government to reduce the tax on tobacco products, arguing that, in his words, the public is deeply dissatisfied with the current rate. Now, Xu says that he's spoken to Premier Su Jung Chung about the matter, and we'll have to wait and see, but the tax on cigarettes was raised in June of 2017 by 20 NT per packet following passage of an amendment to the tobacco and alcohol tax. Now, while Shu says that he's not encouraging people to smoke, he recognises that it's one of life's pleasures for some people, and he was actually quoted as saying that. And while the tobacco tax goes towards the long-term care of senior citizens, Shu says that smokers should not be the ones to fund it. So, Klaus, do you think cigarettes should be cheaper? No, I, I think we shouldn't stop here. I mean, I, I think riding a motorcycle, feeling the wind blowing in your hair is one of life's little pleasures. And but, I think we but, absolutely need to get rid of the safety helmet regulations while and, we're at it. But we have to drive our two-stroke scooters and do that. Because the because, vibration is so, and feeling the pollutin, so nice. And the pollutions are so bad, yeah? <laughs> yeah, how about seatbelts? I mean, yeah. I mean, driving without seatbelts is, is pleasure for some, some people. <laughs> so so you're, both, you're both no, don't scrap the tax on cigarettes, I take it. Raise it, of course. I mean, of course. <laughs> 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 They're too cheap anyway, so. Yeah, yeah the global trend is to not raising the, uh, the tobacco test, but also raising the, the legal smoking age, right? I mean, in New York, they are raising it from 18 to 21. And there are some states, probably in Hawaii, they're, they're thinking about raising to 100. So effectively banning smoking. <laughs> so that's the global trend. I mean, um, I'm not sure why um, this particular legislator is feeling, you know. Yeah. But um, seriously, I mean, I've been in Taiwan for about 10 years. And I remember 10 years ago, smoking on the street and public places was more widely seen than now. So mm -hmm. Taiwan hasn't been doing a bad job in cutting and uh, cutting down on the smoking rate and smoking in public. One of the interesting laws they passed, of course, where you couldn't smoke driving a vehicle. But you still see lots of people smoking cigarettes on their scooters and driving their cars, of course. 
Oh yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I hope it will not be a good habit to get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, but if you look at Japan, I mean, they are still pretty, you know, cheap to buy, um, to make, uh, to, and a lot of people smoking on the streets. And but they have a lot of infrastructure. They have smoking rooms everywhere. So um, want to make sure Taiwan, you know, being going into uh, becoming an advanced country. I mean, this this smoking issues like this, we have to really look up to international standards and not just thinking about you know the the, the elections and votes and ballots and whatnot. And that's where we'll leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Xiao Xinxiang. Good day. And Klaus Badenhagen. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to one of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.